If you help clients with individual or group DI, the sale is all too often much easier than the claim process. What can you do to avoid problems up front? And what do you need to know if a client's claim doesn't go smoothly? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. As many of you longtime listeners know, I am a self-admitted DI dork. I love the product. I wish more advisors took advantage of the massive opportunity in the market, but many have. And what they know is that despite all the conversations that you have at the point of sale, the rubber meets the road at claims time. And sometimes that road is not straight, smooth, or unfilled with potholes. And for that, we've got Eric Buchanan, president and owner of the eponymous Eric Buchanan Associates with us today. And this is the area in which Eric, who's an attorney, operates. And we thought it'd be great to Talk about some of the pitfalls, some of what's avoidable, how you get into trouble, and how you get out of it. With that, welcome, Eric. Glad to be here. Super excited to do this. Thank you. Thank you. So a quick jot about how you got into the business, because I think you have a very interesting story. Yeah, sure. So basically, my business is I'm helping the claimants, the insureds, get the benefits under their policies. And the way I got into that practice of law was my father helped people with social security disability benefits. He worked for the social security administration all the way back in the seventies. And when I went to law school in the early nineties, when I got out of the Navy, he asked me to come work for him. And so my first six years, my job was helping individuals who claimed they were disabled to get their social security disability benefits. Basically you file for social security disability and you get what you would have gotten when you retire. You get that early because you prove you're unable to work. Along the way, we started having some clients come in who had insurance policies. Most of them had group policies that covered them at work. And and, and later, I learned in our industry, we call those long-term disability policies. At least that's what the attorneys do. And I started helping a few people with those long-term disability policies. And over the next 10 or 15 years, I really learned that that's what kind of best use of my skill set was, that I can help people with Social Security disability, but I really fell in love with helping people fight to get the benefits that they were promised under an insurance policy. After a few years of doing that, we started running into a few other cases where people had private disability insurance policies, the policies they bought directly from an insurance company, maybe through a broker or an agent that just covered them, not so not a group policy. And learning how to handle those cases differently than the group LTD cases is kind of a special skill set that you have to have if you're going to help people with their disability insurance benefits. And before I sound like the bad guy out there to anybody who's listening, who is a broker, an agent, somebody who sells these policies, I am a huge believer 
in disability insurance, that it is a product that should be sold. It's a product that people should be able to go out and buy. It's kind of sort of your own obligation in our society, I think, that if you're a high wage earner and your family is dependent on you, that not only do you need life insurance if the worst happens, but you need disability insurance if something happens to you, you're still alive, but you just can't work and your family is dependent on that income. I love to help people get those benefits. And a lot of times we can work it out with the insurance companies. Most of the time, my goal is to help my client get the benefits they're entitled to and dealing directly with an insurance company's claims department. So part of my philosophy is I love for people to buy these policies. And to the extent that agents or brokers are selling these policies, I want to educate them on how to sell the right policy to somebody and what the obligations that the policy might create for the client that they sold a policy to, how those rules work to make sure that a business owner that provides a policy or an agent that sells a policy, they've done the best they can to get their customer a great policy. And then later on, if unfortunately there's a fight with the claims department, then it's just me helping my client get that money that they're entitled to and the claims department might mis- might disagree with. Sure. So is is there a way you talk about agents and advisors getting clients the right policies? Is is there a way that advisors can limit their liability or their exposure, if you prefer that term, by how they take the app? Because for people who don't sell disability, a reminder that maybe, and you may have heard this at some point, disability apps have two kinds of underwriting. They have medical underwriting and they have financial underwriting. So when you're filling out that app, it's a little bit more complex than a life insurance application. What can I do, if anything, on the app to limit my down-the-road exposure? Well, that's a great question. I I think what I have seen as an attorney helping people, you know, the people who come to me are ultimately the customers who purchase those policies. And occasionally when you have to look back to see what transpired when they were sold the policy, the most common mistake is one of those mistakes that I hear from insurance agents all the time that, well, most people learned basically at the very beginning, don't take shortcuts in the application process. Don't fill out the forms ahead of time. And But you'd be surprised how often it still pops up that a claim occurs where I'd like to help my client get their benefits from the insurance company, but now we got to bring the broker into it because the insurance company is denying the claim saying the application wasn't filled out properly, that they didn't check all the boxes or they lied and said they hadn't engaged in certain dangerous activities or whatever it was. And it turns out the, the story ends up often being that the insurance agent checks all the boxes on the form ahead of time and doesn't thoroughly go over that with with their client. Unfortunately, that's kind of one of the most common places where I'm still seeing agents have some liability, but potentially potentially making a mistake. The less dangerous area where agents maybe don't know what they're doing as much as they should and don't always give the best advice but it doesn't come back to hurt them in terms of liability, but it might hurt their reputation as a, as a salesperson is selling group policies to employers and not telling the employers what their obligations are under ERISA, the federal law that applies to most employee benefits. A lot of employers who buy group policies, well, most of them, almost all of them become something called a plan administrator, which has certain obligations especially things like providing plan documents to an employee who asked, providing information to the employees. Sometimes even if the employee didn't know to ask the right question, the employer, because they're a plan administrator, has a fiduciary obligation to inform their employees of what their rights are under the insurance policies. A lot of agents maybe have not been trained enough 
to explain to an employer, when you buy this policy, Mr. Customer, Mr. Employer, here's the obligations you're taking on as a plan administrator. And maybe it might make the sales process a little tougher. The employer just wants to buy this group policy for their employees. The agent just wants to sell the policy. But later on down the road, when there's a disputed claim, the employer starts getting these nasty letters from an attorney saying, where's the plan documents and why didn't you do this to protect your employee when they filed a claim? And the employer's thinking to the agent, why didn't you tell me this was my obligation? Why didn't you tell me what I had to do that the fact that I am now a plan administrator under ERISA and what the heck does that mean? That's a common problem that usually the employer ultimately might be brought into a lawsuit over because they just didn't understand what the rules were and what they were supposed to do. Agents are not necessarily liable for that, you know, typically aren't getting sued for that, but it might hurt their ability to go to a customer and say, trust me to buy some more policies from you or refer me to other business owners. If the business owner who buys the policies you want to sell is mad at you because you didn't tell him about ERISA, he's not going to be a great referral source when you're looking to sell some other policies. That's true. That's true. Do, Do you find that most disputes are over the medical side of the information or the underwriting process or on the financial side? So the vast majority of disputes are what I would call medical vocational disputes and not just medical. And what I mean by that is in order to prove you're disabled, you you typically an individual, one of my clients needs to show they have a medical condition that could reasonably cause them to not be able to work. And you've got to show the underlying medical condition with medical records, doctor's reports, doctor's opinions. This person really does have, you know, a certain condition. They have cardiac failure. They have a herniated disc. They have diabetes so bad that they have poor circulation in their feet and can't stand anymore. Whatever the medical condition is, is the baseline and you need to be able to prove that. And then the next level is what restrictions and limitations does that cause? Does that medical condition cause? And that actually ends up being the dispute with the insurance companies a lot. The insurance companies will have a doctor or doctors review the medical records and say, I think the guy with diabetes in his feet can still stand two thirds of the day while his treating doctor might say, no, this guy needs to stand less than an hour during the workday and he needs to elevate his feet sometimes. And that dispute is not that he has diabetes or not, but how bad is that person's diabetes and what are the restrictions and limitations? And part of the problem with disability insurance disputes is it's a little subjective. I mean, how do you prove one way or the other if the treating doctor is right or the insurance company's doctor is right? And that's where compiling more information, more evidence, maybe doing as much testing as possible comes into play to convince the insurance company that this person really does have these restrictions, limitations, or if the case can't be resolved with the insurance company, taking the case to court and getting a judge, in some cases a jury, to agree with one side or the other. Does it make sense for somebody who thinks they're going to be a claimant to try to amass all that information up front? before a claim is filed? So gathering the information up front, I don't think is as important as doing what is the, I think the more common sense thing a person needs to do is actually make sure they're getting the treatment to try to get better. Because the same treatment that will help you get better, the records that document that are also the records that tell a good story later on if you're trying to convince an insurance company or a court that you're really disabled. So it's, it's usually, it's the, you know, if you hire a lawyer, it's my job, my firm's job to gather those medical records. But if there aren't any medical records to gather in the first place, 
it's kind of tough. And so some of the hardest cases for me to help people with is they have a severe condition, but either the doctors told them I can't do anything else for you. So they stopped seeing doctors or for whatever reason, their doctors don't want to cooperate in the process and fill out forms and provide opinions. Or for just some reason, the, the person doesn't see that many doctors. So it's the, it's the individual's kind of goal to get better that overlaps with, if you can't get better, those medical records showing how hard you tried tell a very compelling story that you're disabled. And now, a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years' experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health's solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. We touched a little bit about, we didn't call it own occupation, but we touched a little bit on occupational difficulties and, and being able to, to, to make sure that those align with what was on the application. Are there other policy provisions besides occupation that, that cause problems? For example, I think of something that is frequently misunderstood for a bunch of different things is residual. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. That's actually kind of the answer I was going to say. So one of the the more frequent problems I see is the combination of how do you calculate somebody's residual earnings and some of the policies that apply to professionals that calculate their earnings from doing their job versus owning their business. Let me give you an example of that. If somebody's a dentist and they have some arthritis in their hands, so they stop doing three-fourths of the procedures they used to do, they're only doing procedures one day out of four now or whatever it is but they go hire another dentist to come work for that practice. And because that dentist is so good, the business earns 60, 70, 80, 90% of what it used to make. So this dentist doesn't have that much of a loss. The original dentist who bought the policy, who owned the practice, doesn't have that much loss of earnings. That's a pretty common fight we get into. Was he insured for how much he can earn as a dentist or was he or she insured for how much money he can earn and make owning a dental practice. And some of the policies are written in a way that the money that comes in from owning the practice and by having to hire a replacement still counts as earnings. So the person hasn't quote had a loss of earnings and then they're technically not disabled, even though they can only work maybe one fourth of the time that they used to be able to work. Where in a a sample policy would someone find that language? That's a great question. And a lot of sample policies are, how would I say this, hard for laymen to read. And I'm not always sure that the insurance agents quite understand how some of those policy turns into getting translated when the cases end up in a dispute later on. If you look at the definition of loss of earnings, if you look at the definition of earned income, sometimes you have to look in two or three different 
places in the policy to piece together the fact that it might say in one place the dentist needs to have at least 20% loss of earnings. And then you're and you look in a different place and it says earnings include money earned from the practice of dentistry or from owning a dental practice or from owning any business. It'll even say that in some policies. So if the person retires from being a dentist and goes and starts a different business and makes a lot of money doing that, even though they're physically disabled from being a dentist, depending how the policy is written, they actually haven't had a loss of earnings. Or maybe they have, just depending on the policy language of what counts as a loss of earnings. But typically, sample policies aren't profession-specific. So is this something that you would only find, an agent or advisor would only find prior to delivering the policy to the client and looking in the actual policy document itself? That's another great question. One of my biggest complaints, I guess I would say, as a litigation attorney who helps people on the back end when they become disabled, is how few people actually sit down and read a specimen policy, and then how few people actually read their policy once it's delivered. And to ask, answer, answer the question you actually asked, sometimes the specimen policies have this language in there, but it's more vague in general, or maybe it's in there, but if you're not thinking about it in terms of your profession, what is it that you actually do to earn money? If you're a doctor, a lawyer, a CPA, a dentist, think of professionals like that. You, you actually help people when you work on a file as a lawyer or work on somebody's mouth as a dentist, or you actually treat people as a doctor. That's how you earn money. But if it's a small practice and you're the owner, aren't you also earning money when you spend Friday afternoons talking about how to market your practice better and you spend time working on management with your office manager and all that kind of stuff. And when does that stuff count? And it's, if you are experienced in litigating these cases, we as attorneys get used to looking into the policies and finding the language that the insurance companies are going to try to interpret one way or the other on those issues. Whether that's actually in the specimen policies, I, I haven't actually seen that many specimen policies that lay it out the way that the insurance companies argue they should be read later on on the back end if there's a dispute. So a good thing to be aware of. You said something in the pre-interview, and I, I'd like to touch on it for a moment. If I understood you correctly, you said that insurance companies get the benefit of the doubt in proceedings. How does that work? What's that all about? So I have to back up one second before I answer that question and tell everybody there's really two types of insurance policies as far as courts are concerned. Whether it's disability or life insurance or health insurance, if you get the policy as an individual, if you if the agent's customer buys the policy directly from the insurance company through a broker or whatever, and they're the individual insured and they pay their own premiums, most of those policies fall under state law. If the claim is denied, the individual has the right to go to a jury trial, have witnesses testify, have doctors come in and explain how they're disabled, how disabled they are, for example, what the problems are, all that kind of stuff. But if the individual person buys the policy at work, the vast majority of group policies issued through work fall under ERISA. ERISA is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. And unfortunately, what ERISA does is changes the rules for the people who have the claims, the people who would be the insured under an individual policy. They're still the insureds under these group policies, but they, they don't own the policies. The employer owns the policy, but the individual employees are the beneficiaries. They're the ones who are covered under the policy. And when they have a claim, the insurance company ends up having a lot of advantages because of the way the ERISA law 
has played out. And the way the risk law works is, first of all, it says you can't take those cases to state court. You have to take them to federal court, or at least if you do take them to state court, the federal rules apply. One of the big federal rules that applies because of a Supreme Court case from the late 80s, a case called Firestone Tire versus Brudge, the Supreme Court basically said, if the insurance company and the employer put language in the policy giving discretion to the insurance company, that magic language then means the insurance company is treated under an arbitrary and capricious standard of review in federal court. And what that means kind of in plain English is if the insurance company is wrong, but they're reasonable about it, courts will say that's not arbitrary and capricious. As long as they were reasonable, they can be wrong and still win. Now, there's a lot of different issues related to that where there's arguments that can be made that they don't get the full deference of that standard review if, for example, we can, we as plaintiff's attorneys, we as attorneys helping the insured people can show that the insurance company was acting under a conflict of interest, then they don't get the full deference. But the Supreme Court has still said they get some deference. So they still get the benefit of the doubt in court, even when it, you can show they're paying with their own money. And maybe even they're taking that into account during the claims process. And that's one of the frequent areas of litigation under ERISA is just what standard of review should the court be applying? Is, is the right language in the policy? And if the right language is in the policy, how much of the conflict of interest has the insurance company managed to get rid of by keeping the claims department away from the financial side of the insurance company? So just to be clear, would an individual policy that someone is goofy enough to use corporate funds to pay for fall under the ERISA statutes, or would it go back into state court as opposed to a group policy? That is a fantastic question. And the reality is that if you pay for your individual policy through work, a lot of the rules will potentially turn that policy into an ERISA policy and you lose the advantages of state court and state court rules and you get stuck under the ERISA rules. And as an attorney who helps disabled people, I will tell you it's one of the most frequent areas of litigation because the insurance companies do not want to fight a disability case in front of a jury in state court. They will frequently argue that policies issued through work or paid for through work or list build through work all have become ERISA policies instead of individual disability policies. So the fight over whether a policy has been, we call it ERISA-fied, been turned into an ERISA policy is is very, very common. And it's one of the most frequent issues the insurance company's claims attorneys will raise. We've got about a minute or so left. I, I think maybe an interesting place to end would be one question about how many of these cases are settled out of court and how that relates to commercial cases in general. Great question. I can't speak generally for the industry except to say that from what research I have done, the insurance company can usually work it out with a good plaintiff's attorney, good insured attorney, 30 to 40% of the time. That's been the experience in my firm. Of those cases that you can't win during the claims process that have to go to court, there are some national statistics that show that they settle a significant portion of the time, somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of the time, of that remaining somewhere around one-third to one-quarter of the cases that go to court, the national t- statistics for an ERISA case, for the group policies that fall under ERISA, the insurance company wins two-thirds of the time because they have that deferential standard review and because of some of the other rules that help them. 
attorneys who regularly practice in this area, who understand the rules, understand how the ERISA rules work, and can tip- typically find some other good arguments. And if you're prepared for it as a as a good a- attorney helping people with ERISA claims, you can do better than losing two thirds of the time. Winning two thirds of the time, I would say, is not unusual for a good plaintiff's attorney. But you still lose more often than I would say you would if it was just a straightforward breach of contract case, a regular insurance policy case that goes to state court in front of a jury. Fascinating. We could talk about, or at least I could talk about DI for hours, but that's the end of our time. And Eric Buchanan, president and owner of Eric Buchanan Associates. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. A lot of really, really good information for advisors. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And let me know if I can help any more in the future. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. Thank you.